Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. All right, we're reflecting a little bit on uh, Peter's denial of Jesus around the fire uh, on this night. Um, and so we're going to uh, kind of slowly read the text uh, in, in a few minutes um, after I, I talk for a few minutes, uh, and then we'll do a, a guided meditation on this story. Um, but when I think of this story right away, and I don't know if you're like me, it's like, okay, tonight we're talking about the story of Peter denying Jesus. I'm immediately brought back to my childhood. This idea of denying Jesus was a very big deal when I was a teenager. So I remember when my family first got the internet. Things that are like not all people can say now, right? Um, we had a huge desktop computer in our kitchen with a loud dial-up, and you couldn't connect to the internet if someone was on a landline uh, because the call would drop. Uh, and so it was, as you can imagine, an exciting time for a family of five in the late 90s. Picture this big kitchen and the big computer and like, it's like, screen. Um, my first email address was blue underscore jeans, but G-E-N-E-S, like sad genetics, uh, at hotmail.com because I was a young teen in her Christian goth face. Um, my next email address, however, uh, you'll you'll laugh at this because I was really pure hearted, but I got in trouble. Um. My next email address was rough underscore legged underscore hawk at Canoomit. Um, I had to get rid of that one really quickly because while I was simply in my nature girl phase who had had a great time at the birds of prey section at the Calgary Zoo in the Canadian wilds and there were these owls and amazing birds and I had this kind of special moment with this bird and found out it was called a rough legged hawk and it was just so cool so I made this my email. Put some buzz kills in my parents' small group who didn't know what a majestical creature the rough legged hawk really is thought the phrase rough-legged was not a phrase for a young woman to be associated with. So I had to get rid of that one. So anyway, the internet, when we first got it and I was a teenager, it was just a weird time like for families to figure it all out. Um, my parents were hyper-vigilant. Uh, you're going to love this. Okay. My parents were hyper-vigilant, for good reason, of course, about strangers on the internet. Um, and so we just had one computer in the kitchen, and this would kind of prevent us from having privacy or being vulnerable on the World Wide Web. It didn't protect me entirely, however, although, oh, let me tell you how often I thank God that I'm, I was a teenager then and not now. Um, it didn't protect me entirely because one of the very first emails I remember getting, like, that really stood out to me was chain mail. I don't know if this term means anything now. Um, it was this very foreboding email saying that if I didn't forward the email to three people, I'd have bad luck uh, for a year. And there were stories of ancient woe from folks who had not forwarded the message and stories of good fortune uh, to those who had. And I was very afraid of conjuring bad luck on myself. So I took immediate action. I did not really have any friends or anyone else with an email address. I didn't really know how to forward an email. Um, so I printed out the email and mailed it via post to three recipients. Uh, an older cousin, my mom's former best friend's daughter who lived in BC, and my piano teacher. I knew how to stamp envelopes and all that. Like, it was a different time. Um, and I did not sign this. I did not write an intro. I didn't put that it was from me. It was just a sinister printed out email that came in the mail with a sinister warning to forward the message or else. So, of course, this anonymous letter made the recipients very uncomfortable. Um, this was, like, shortly after 9-11. Like, like, there was just a lot of fear and anxiety around getting letters in the mail that, with foreboding messages whose origin you do not know. 
Um, and so eventually, though, because the only person connected to like my mom's former best friend's daughter and my piano teacher and my cousin was me, uh, we figured it out. Um, and my parents were confused. They were just like, why did you send that? You could have just like deleted the email and moved on. And it was like, but I'm genuinely afraid of what will happen to me if I, did, if I don't keep these warnings. So you can imagine. When the internet became more of a mainstream thing and there were chat rooms and apps and things like ICQ and MSN Messenger, um, I'd see these memes often with a picture of Jesus. And the text would say, if you deny me, I will deny you in front of the Father. And these memes terrified young Nikayla. So I would always forward them and email them and just make sure that Jesus knew I would never, ever deny him in this way. Um, and I thought that by scrolling by this kind of meme, um, eternal damnation would be the result. Like, I was afraid of this. Um, and I honestly, and I, as I wrote this out the other day, I kind of smiled because this is so true. Um, I could picture when I was a kid, this like heavenly courtroom scene with a lawyer proclaiming confidently to the heavenly jury. On March 4th, 1998 at 4.22 p.m., Nikayla was on the internet and saw an image of Jesus and she ignored it. She didn't hit like, she didn't forward it, and she did not comment amen. And I imagine that my grandmother would be there and all of the angels, of course, and they'd gasp in horror. And at the end of the trial, Jesus would enter the courtroom and someone would say, do you know this woman? And he would say, no, I do not know her. And God the Father would shake his head and send me away. Uh, and so my fear of denying Jesus was great. Uh, and this story about Peter denying Jesus uh, definitely gripped my young imagination. Um, it still does. Uh, with a less, a different kind of anxiety, or, or less anxiety, hopefully. But um, it grips my imagination very much. This story is a very um, evocative story. There's a lot of imagery uh, you can almost hear the crackling of the fire. You know, Peter is there outside the courtyard by the fire. It's dark. You can imagine kind of being chilly and warming your hands. Um, you've got the sound in everyone's mind of a rooster crowing at the crack of dawn. I remember the first time I actually heard that, it was like, oh. I think I was like on a mission trip in Mexico, and we heard that all the time. Oh, this was a sound that they heard all the time, but this one particular crow would have been like super unnerving for, obviously, Peter. Um, but you have these kind of images, the dark night, the rooster crowing, the crackling fire. Um, and so it's a really powerful story. And I do think there's a lot of profound intersections uh, that this story invites us into. So uh, what I want to do before we just slowly uh, read this text together, as we have done the past two weeks, um, I want to kind of draw your attention to a few things to look for. So you'll notice <clears throat> when we get into the text, it's not very long. It's like 15 verses, um, that there's kind of two stories happening at the same time. Uh, Peter has been arrested in the garden. You know, Judas kissed him, and then he was arrested and kind of dragged away. And um, the disciples have apparently all fled away, men fled away naked. And so they they kind of take Jesus to the house of the high priest, who are religious leaders, like the most revered religious leader. Um, so Jesus is on trial at the high priest's house. Um, we get the sense it's the middle of the night. It was unplanned. It's kind of improvised, so it's somewhat illegal. Uh, happening in the middle of the night, and there are no witnesses on Jesus' side. It's not how court interrogation is usually supposed to go. It's not a Roman trial. It's not a public trial. There aren't like like Roman officers there or something. It's just an entirely a religious in-house <clears throat> in situation. These are religious authority figures interrogating this religious kind of rocker of the boat, so to speak, uh, interrogating him. This has not yet made it to like the police or lawyers. They're at the house of a high priest. Um, so it's like, imagine, I mean, it's, it's totally different, but just for our own cultural context, you can imagine like the pastor, the regional minister, a representative of the board of the denomination, and the elders are having a private meeting. 
a little like some torture and interrogation and false testimony uh, happening, but in the name of protecting the faith. Um, this is that kind of meeting. It's private, and the folks interrogating Jesus are well-respected uh, religious leaders in their community. Um, but happening at the exact same time as this interrogation uh, is Peter following Jesus. Uh, Peter has followed Jesus all the way to the high priest's house from the garden. So he may have fled away at first in fear when the arrest took place, but we can see here that he really wanted to stay near Jesus. He didn't actually just run away and hide. He, he's trying to get as close to Jesus as he can. So although it's like Peter denied Jesus, it's like Peter's the closest one, the closest follower of Jesus in this story. It's profound. He, he could be elsewhere, but um, he's not. And so there's kind of a hope at the moment of the story that like, oh, there's, you know, if we're comparing Judas to Peter, a few verses ago, you know, Peter's sleeping and Jesus is like, stay awake with me, stay awake with me. What a failure. Uh, and then, you know, Judas shows up and betrays Jesus with a kiss. So you're like, okay, Peter's not so bad. Um, and now Peter's here at the fire kind of trying to be near Jesus. So Peter's really looks good again. But we'll see at the end of the story he denies uh, knowing Jesus. And there's this kind of beautiful play on how all of the followers and disciples of Jesus are complicated characters. So uh, Peter obviously wants to be near Jesus. He followed. He made it all the way to the courtyard of the high priest's house. And he was there with the slaves of the high priest. So he's, he's very close. He's with kind of the, the servants of the high priest. And you'll remember the last time we've encountered the slave of a high priest uh, was just in the last uh, few verses when someone, perhaps Peter, was cutting off his ear. So um, Jesus is inside the building being interrogated, and Peter is outside by the fire being interrogated as well. There's a double interrogation. It's a beautiful uh, way to, to tell stories. Mark does this brilliantly. Um, Mark does this in his writing pretty often. It's called intercalation, uh, where Mark will kind of merge two stories together in this really creative way. He'll kind of introduce a story and then stop, shift to another one, and then that ends, and then he picks up the first story. And he does this a few times off throughout his gospel in ways that the other gospel writers don't do. And it's really profound because what he's doing is trying to get us to compare the two events to each other. So... Uh, here, Jesus is carried off to the high priest. Peter follows close behind and is warming himself at the fire while Jesus is experiencing the heat of interrogation. And after uh, Jesus' interrogation ends, Mark resumes the drama with Peter. So we're meant to contrast and compare. Jesus is asked three questions, and Peter is also asked three questions. Jesus is being questioned by those in positions of great power, and Peter is being questioned by marginalized, enslaved people whose only power is found in their proximity to the religious authorities. The last thing Jesus, uh, the, the last thing that's said to Jesus is a mocking command to prophesy. They blindfold him and spit on him and mock him and they, they, they hit him and say, prophesy, who, who hit you? And that's pretty profound because the, the idea of that mocking violent act is as if to say, you aren't really a prophet and we know it. But meanwhile, outside, Peter is fulfilling the prophecy Jesus spoke the evening before and denying him three times. It's profound. Prophesy if you're really a prophet. And you can bet, you know, if Jesus hears the cock crow, it's, there's an irony there. So the religious leaders will ask Jesus, did you really say, I will destroy this temple? And when he doesn't answer, they will say, have you no answer? Uh, and then lastly, they will say, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Peter will be asked, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And then he'll be asked, you are one of them. You're a Galilean, aren't you? And then lastly, they will say, you are one of them, are you not? 
So while Jesus stands silent before his accusers until he's asked if he's the Messiah and boldly says, yes, I am. I did say that. Uh, Jesus said this knowing what the consequences were. He's blindfolded, mocked, spit on, and beat, which is a rather paradoxical punishment uh, for a man who spent his days healing the blind, treating the outcast with dignity, and even using his own spit to heal and set free. Peter says, no, I do not know Jesus to all three inquiries. The two scenes are happening at the same time. While Peter is suffering the shame of knowing Jesus was right about Peter's denial, proving again and again that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is suffering the pain and humiliation reserved for criminals and liars. Peter is closer to Jesus than any of his followers. He's right outside, more loyal and more vulnerable than anyone else. But he can't quite bring himself to put his own skin in the game. Or to believe that telling the truth to a few insignificant slave girls could possibly matter. There's an interesting power dynamic where it's like, who are you to me? You're not, oh, I don't have to tell you anything. I don't know the guy, leave me alone. You're nothing. Would he have answered the same if it was the religious authority? You know, like, it's very interesting to look at who the vulnerable people in this story are. Um, but it seems that Peter wants to be silently near Jesus. He wants to have a personal and private relationship with Jesus. And it is no one else's business, whether he is with this man or not. He doesn't have to tell anyone. This is a private matter for him. Peter cannot move beyond the private intentions of nearness, uh, of his nearness uh, toward the public posture of solidarity with the innocent ones being oppressed in secret. If Jesus said in Matthew 25, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me, then here we find in Peter and in ourselves the fact that to the least of these, we often say, I feel a strong desire to make a difference, to help, to do something. I pray for you privately. I, I, I even journey near the site of the injustice uh, on Google. Um, but ultimately, I do not risk being seen. I wanted God to notice my concern for the poor, uh, whether the poor notice my concern for the poor or not. Uh, and so there's so much in this text. Uh, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read it slowly. It, it's uh, kind of spread out over a few slides. Uh, and I'll just take a moment between for you to kind of get into the scene, notice all the different characters, notice the parts that are familiar, the parts that aren't familiar, and, and notice the parts that you resonate with. And yeah. All right. So Mark 14, 53 to 72. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes were assembled. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many gave false testimony against him, and their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in these days I will build another not made with hands. But even on this point, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But he was silent and did not answer. 
Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And all of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. The guards also took him over and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she stared at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I do not know or understand what you're talking about. He went out into the forecourt. Then the cock crowed. And the servant girl, on seeing him, began again to say to the bystanders, bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And then after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to curse, and he swore an oath. I do not know this man you are talking about. And at that moment, the cock crowed for the second time. And Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Take a moment to consider the characters or the phrases or the images that are achieving it. I admit that I see myself in the religious leaders. I sometimes see myself as a gatekeeper of true Christianity uh, and proper biblical interpretation. I'm a pastor and a Bible scholar and a debater and a social media user and a voter. <laughs> I am easily seduced by the appeal to keep the faith pure, you know, to talk about the true tradition. And I wonder how often I am playing the role of gatekeeper um, or how often my energy is wasted on loyalty to gatekeepers, even if I think they're wrong and acting wrongly. I also admit to seeing myself in Jesus in some ways, uh, being dismissed, falsely accused, exaggerated about, gossiped about, lied about, misrepresented by folks who can afford to be careless with their tongues and lazy in their concern about me and my community. I feel the weight of Jesus' silence, as if he knows there's nothing he can say that could make a difference because the power brokers have already made up their minds and they have the silent loyalty of the masses protecting them from any accountability. I feel Jesus' resignation to the injustice and his heavy hope that allowing the injustice to exhaust itself could make a difference. I see Jesus there with spit on his face, bruised, bleeding, looking up as if through the blindfold to a vision of a better world. I see Jesus with his tears and his blood and his sweat, each droplet a seed being planted in the garden of the future of the kingdom yet to come. I see Jesus awake in the garden begging us to stay awake, to be present, to pay attention, to keep watch with him. I see Jesus fully there in the present moment, asking us not to dissociate, not to withdraw one of his comforts, stay present. And finally, 
I see myself in Peter. Um, this, this is the part of the story um, that is so profound to me. I see myself wanting to be me, wanting to be in Jesus' inner circle, wanting to be known for my faithfulness and my Christ-like advocacy and my character, and yet see myself hiding behind the screen. I see myself hiding um, by, behind, um, you know, my family or, or, or my privilege. I see myself forwarding memes and typing amen. And um, I see myself putting my pronouns in my bio or a treaty acknowledgement in my signature. I see myself safe and warm in my kitchen, in my neighborhood, in my life. Uh, and I see myself overwhelmed by despair, immobilized by the size of the problems in my neighborhood. I see myself not knowing how to really get involved, how to really make a difference, how to actually be in community with people on the margins, how to stand up for truth in a way that doesn't just cause more harm than good and cost me my place at status quo's table. I can see myself in that space between comfortable individualism and the dread of radical advocacy friendship. I see myself um, wanting to be warmed by the Holy Father. But I notice myself prefer it if no one noticed me there or asked anything. Uh, I say this, and some of you who've like followed me so in the last two weeks, really, but mostly this is true. I don't want to give my opinion on political issues um, or stand up uh, for uh, people experiencing injustice. I often don't want to risk losing my place at the table of anyone. Um, I can hear my own voice. I do not know this man. It's none of your business. Um, but then there's another voice that says, why are you here? And that's the question that's not in the text. It's so profound to me. It's, Peter says, I do not know this man. And no one says, then why are you here? Why are you here in the courtyard of the high priest warming yourself by the fire with us? If you don't know this man, why are you here? And I, I, I see with so much compassion this character who's like, just leave me alone and let me figure that out. I don't know, but I know I have to be here. And there's like a hesitation. I don't know how to be here. I don't know what to do. I'm just here and I want to be here. Um, and we're only focusing on Mark in this series, but I think it's profound that while Jesus knows about this and while Jesus also would have heard the cock crow, um, we know that Peter goes on to give up his life for this work, to pursue and follow Jesus in a costly way. He goes on. And I realize that I would rather be discipled by following the way of Peter, acknowledging my shortcomings, acknowledging my doubt, acknowledging how I've wanted to keep my faith private. Um, and, and in that acknowledgement, in that moment where Peter had with the sound of the, the rooster crowing, you know a humility. And Peter goes on, uh, shaped by that humility, to become a religious authority. And I wonder if it would have been different in that room for Jesus if those religious authorities had ever encountered that same humility and weakness and vulnerability. I see in Peter um, this profound moment. And I want to give compassion uh, and frustration. And I want to see uh, forgiveness there. And so the voice I hear, uh, why are you here? I hear that sound in my head, but it is quickly interrupted by the crowing of the rooster. 
by the fist meeting the face of Jesus, by the crackle of the fire. Quickly the night turns to morning, and after this Jesus is carried away to the house of Pontius. And so uh, I'm going to invite uh, Megan to come up in a second, and she's going to uh, just guide us through a meditation to reflect on uh, some elements of the story together. Uh, but first, let me pray. Jesus, we can, uh, we can hear the crackle of the fire. We feel our hearts longing to be near its warmth. We can know that we have tasted and seen the goodness of God, that we have been warmed by the divine fire, that, that we have been near you. We are drawn to that place, and yet we feel vulnerable. We feel overexposed and, and seen in that space. And, and there are voices, um, whether they come from powerful people or, or, or powerless people, whether our response is based on fear or, or disrespect, there's something in us that just wants to be left alone, that wants just this private uh, experience uh, sort of with, near you, but not with so I pray that you would help us to pause in this scene, to not rush forward with a solution or a, uh, an alternative reading or something. I, I pray that you would help us to be present at the discomfort of our own um, failure of imagination, of our own uh, failure of nerve. I pray that you would help us to forgive each other for times we've not been courageous, so that feels us right, help us to forgive ourselves. Pray that we will count you. To guide us well into this story, and I pray that we can to more of ourselves. Um, I would like to invite everyone to close their eyes and take a deep breath through your nose for four seconds and exhale through your mouth for four seconds. Take another deep breath. Four seconds through your nose. Exhale four seconds through your mouth. Think about who Jesus was to Peter. A friend, a father figure, the Messiah. Someone that Peter loved. Someone that Peter trusted. Why was Peter so sure that nothing could ever happen that would shake his unflinching love for Jesus? Have you ever felt like that about anybody in your life? What was Peter afraid of?
was Peter acting from a place of self-preservation? Was he acting from a place of trauma? Was he acting from both? Have you ever had your survival or your livelihood threatened by who you associate with? What was that feeling of unsafety like for you? Where do you think Peter was holding his adrenaline and his defensiveness? in his body, in his chest, in his jaw, in his hands. Jesus claimed divinity and accepted suffering. Peter denied identification as a way of rejecting suffering. His need to avoid suffering was so great that he was willing to openly speak lies about someone he had previously offered to die for. What suffering do we avoid? And at what cost to ourselves? How far are we willing to go to prolong contact with that which haunts us The text tells us that once Peter realized what he had done, he went away and wept bitterly. What in your life has made you weep bitterly? Which aspect of Peter's behavior do you think caused him the most anguish? Do you think Peter ever forgave himself? What would Peter want us to remember about him? Can love and betrayal coexist? Why does God want us to know this part of the story in particular? What does it reveal about God, about Peter, 
about us. Jesus, we come to you in sorrow and we come to you in weakness. We remember Peter. We remember that he denied you three times. We remember that he wept bitterly. We remember that he devoted the rest of his life to the gospel. We remember how much he loved you. We remember how much you loved him. Reveal to us what this story ought to mean to us. Restore us and forgive us as Peter was restored and forgiven. In this time of Lent, we remember your wounds.